This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Bit of an unusual one for us today, but man, we were talking about this earlier. We, heard, You know, you heard that Oprah Winfrey is coming to town this summer, right? She's got this uh, five-part or five-city Canadian tour that she's going on. It's called Oprah Winfrey Presents Your Path Made Clear. It was inspired by her latest book called The Path Made Clear. She's going to talk about, uh, you know, pivotal moments in her life that helped shape her path and purpose. And oh, she'll be doing this at Rogers Arena. So you can come down and have a listen if you've got the buck to do that. Uh, So she's coming to Vancouver on Monday, June 24th. And there are some pre-sale tickets that are available right now. Uh, And it looks like they're about $115 or so, but tickets are likely to go up in price from there. That's a pretty uh, basic price that they've got there. So we're curious to know today, because I mean, you know, when I first heard she was coming, I was like, yeah, great. I'd go see Oprah. I've never seen Oprah in person before. And then I was like, if it's going to be at least $115, I don't think I'm going to be doing that. That doesn't sound like something uh, that I'm going to spend hundreds of dollars on. Would you do that, though? That's my question. How much would you pay to see Oprah Winfrey in Vancouver? Would that interest you at all? Because that's our first choice. Not interested. Or $100 $250, 250 to $400, $400 or more? Because, you know, there are people who have paid those kinds of prices. We've had some great speakers coming to town uh, in the last little while, right? Michelle Obama was here. Barack Obama was here. Uh, also, like, apparently the Clintons are coming, right? The Clintons are coming soon as well. So they're all making Vancouver a stop these days. How much are you willing to pay to hear a great speaker like Oprah Winfrey in person? This is concert money. This is like big band money, right? Would you pay a couple hundred dollars to go and see Oprah Winfrey talk to you about the path that she has chosen in her life? Let me know. Simi Sarah at 980. I'm so curious about this because I know there's people who are willing because, I mean, come on, it's Oprah Winfrey. But how much? Where do you draw the line on that? So Simi Sarah 980 on Twitter is where you'll find that. You can also go to at CKNW on Twitter and cast your vote. And I'll let you know. I'd be really curious to know, actually, because, I mean, these tickets are going on sale in the next couple of days. So I'm curious to know if they're going to have a sellout of this thing or not. Uh, so let me know. You can also email me, simi at cknw.com. Uh, you can go to our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That's 331-2899. As we promised we would during the election, we proclaimed into law the Preserving Canada's Economic Prosperity Act also known as Bill 12, which gives our government the ability to curtail oil shipments from Alberta. That right there, the new Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney, he was speaking to reporters this morning at a news conference telling them that Bill 12 has been proclaimed. This was legislation that had been passed by the Rachel Notley government, but hadn't been proclaimed into law. They were kind of holding on to it in case they needed it. And Jason Kenney campaigned upon using it, but what they've done instead is proclaim it into law, but they are also still holding on to it. This is legislation that theoretically would allow the province to turn off the taps. I know that's like a popular way they have said it, but turn off the taps to BC. Uh, Premier Kenny also explained what he says, uh, what he thinks this move is going to accomplish. The law that we proclaimed yesterday in our cabinet gives Alberta the ability to, uh, if and only for as long as needed, to control the export of our natural resources in order to maximize their value, whether through uh, BC or elsewhere. Like all Canadians, but more than most, British Columbians benefit from the Trans Mountain Pipeline. 
It's the way that most BC gasoline is delivered. It has safely transported petroleum to BC's lower mainland since 1953. I repeat, the Trans Mountain Pipeline has been there for over six decades without significant, any significant environmental hazard or incident uh, fueling the economy of the lower mainland for decade after decade. And now it's time to expand that pipeline for the benefit of all Canadians, but mostly for the benefit of British Columbians. That is Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. Okay, but what about the response here in BC? Uh, Just before the show started today, I had a chance to speak with Attorney General David Eby and hear some of what he said. Well, Minister Eby, thank you so much for joining us today. First off, we heard from the new Alberta Premier Jason Kenney today, said he wants to meet with the BC government. Uh, Is the BC government willing to make that happen? Uh, yes, I know that uh, Premier Horgan has expressed on many occasions his willingness to sit down with Premier Kenny and to talk this through and to find common ground between our provinces. Uh, I think it's far better that uh, the provinces are uh, talking than uh, battling it out in court or threatening each other through the media. And uh, I think that's a very positive, uh, positive thing for everybody. Do you have confidence that this can get worked out then with Alberta? Uh, I think that is really up to uh, the discussions between the premiers and the federal government. Um, And uh, I have confidence, certainly, in Premier Horgan to go forward and represent British Columbia's interests. And was BC, like, it must have been difficult trying to figure out which way the new Alberta government was going to go. What were BC's preparations like for that? Well, as Attorney General, I have a very clear responsibility, and uh, one of those includes uh, ensuring that British Columbians' interests are protected. In terms of the legal actions of other provinces, and uh, so this uh, issue around Bill 12 uh, being proclaimed into law, our lawyers uh, needed to be ready for if the government of Alberta did proclaim it into law to make sure that we could respond in court because the law is unconstitutional uh, in our opinion, and it's quite clearly unconstitutional. So we need to be there in court to make sure that uh, that law is not used because it is, uh, is not a legal law in our opinion. Uh, so uh, we prepared for that. Uh, we'll be in court to challenge that law as necessary and uh, and hopefully uh, the discussions between the premiers uh, really make that unnecessary. And that actually has happened. We've gotten confirmation this morning uh, from our Victoria Bureau, Richard Zussman included there, who um, said that the Attorney General's office in BC essentially has filed those legal documents to challenge this. That doesn't mean that the discussions still aren't going to go on. They expect all of that will go forward. Uh, there will be a live press conference by Premier John Horgan at 11.30 this morning to respond to all of this that has been going on in the last 24 hours. We will have that for you live right here. So so keep it tuned in. Now, we also, actually, the reason why we'd originally started talking to David Eby before all this happened is that we wanted to talk about casinos. Uh, there, of course, is the Sam Cooper story. We're going to have more on that. But there's also a report coming out today having to do with allegations of sexual harassment and assault on casino staff by patrons at the River Rock Casino Resort in Richmond. So these two reports were released by the Attorney General's office this morning. And so we started out when we talked to David Eby asking about, well, what is in these reports? What is this all about? We had uh, media reports specifically uh, from Sam Cooper uh, that uh, alleged assaults at uh, the Great Canadian Casino on uh, gaming employees and that the assaults were not reported. I directed BC Lottery Corporation to investigate uh, whether or not, uh, in fact, that was happening and uh, whether or not uh, people were being directed not to report. Uh, And uh, they hired an external firm to do that work. They hired Paladin to go and do a review. Paladin investigated and found, yes, in fact, there were assaults uh, that were not reported. 
that report went to the regulator of gaming in British Columbia that has made a series of recommendations uh, for improvement uh, to uh, both the BC Lottery Corporation and to Great Canadian, and a number of reforms have taken place since then. They also gave employees an opportunity to come forward and make complaints and, uh, and move things to the next level if those employees wish to do so. Yeah, having read through that this morning myself, I mean, there's some disturbing things in there that management at River Rock failed to report assaults on their staff to BCLC, that River Rock is getting their employees to sign confidentiality agreements, which they would not provide to investigators. Is that right? Uh, so they uh, did not provide the confidentiality agreement to Paladin, but did provide it to the regulator when the regulator commenced their investigation. Uh, and they have discontinued using that form on a go-forward basis, uh, which is totally appropriate for them uh, to do. It was not uh, properly understood by uh, employees or management in terms of the implications. This is what the regulator found of using that form. Uh, it's critically important that employees feel free to come forward to uh, the regulator, to police of jurisdiction, uh, to their employer with any concerns that they have about what's happening in casinos. Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm glad that the policies have been reformed to ensure that that can happen. Yeah, did that alarm you? Because reading through that, there's unreported sexual harassment, unreported sexual assaults. I mean, that's some scary stuff. Yeah, so um, it, it, what really concerned me was the uh, uh, finding in both reports that there was a different culture of enforcement in terms of patron behavior between the regular gaming floor and the VIP floor. So if you were in um, one of the high roller rooms, it seemed uh, that there was an understanding among employees uh, that there was a different standard expected of uh, them in terms of what they were expected to tolerate from players. Uh, there was an example of a player throwing, a, uh, there's a device on a table that a player uses in a Baccarat game, throwing it off the table and it bouncing off the table and hitting an employee. There was an example of a player uh, playing footsie uh, with a dealer against uh, the dealer's will, uh, uh, certainly not something she was interested in. Uh, these kinds of examples uh, and, uh, and a general concern that uh, in the VIP room there was a different set of standards. Uh, and so uh, it's been made very clear through the regulator to Great Canadian, and uh, I believe they clearly understand it and they've implemented new policies uh, that they are to have a consistent, and BCLC will enforce a consistent set of standards around removing players and banning players from the casino when they engage in, in behavior like this. And Ms. Shabie, I think a lot of people would also wonder, reading this, going, well, how can we allow a company like that to continue gaming? That's a privilege in this province, allowing them to do this when they have these kinds of accusations against them. Um, so the, there is a larger context for these unreported incidents, which is about 50,000-plus uh, uh, reports that were filed by Great Canadian, the regulator found, uh, resulting in the unreported uh, incidents amounting to, according to the regulator, uh, less than one-tenth of one percent of incidents in the casino. Uh, so while uh, there certainly are um, uh, areas for improvement and necessary areas for improvement for Great Canadian, uh, I think it is also important to keep in context that there were about 50,000 reports made by Great Canadian uh, of various incidents that took place in the casino and that the reports were made properly. That is David Eby, the Attorney General of the province. Well, in an exclusive investigation, Global News has obtained an extraordinary collection of data and records from a Great Canadian gaming employee that details an important time in our province's history. These documents, which include contemporaneous journal notes, uh, casino revenue data, and official complaint letters, and a severance agreement, record what some frightened staff say they observed way back in May of 1997 
at the River Rock Casino. And this is when BC's NDP government of the day first introduced baccarat tables and then raised maximum betting limits by something like 1900%. It was this policy decision, according to this great Canadian gaming whistleblower, that opened the floodgates in BCLC casinos to decades of dirty money and large-scale suspected heroin drug money laundering. So this whistleblower documented cash transactions, which clearly appeared to be drug money laundering by gangsters, including the Big Circle Boys. But according to the records, complaints to management were essentially ignored. The casino was making big profits from these cash transactions, and no one wanted to turn off that flood of dirty money, according to the whistleblower. So Sam Cooper told our John McComb this morning that the whistleblower claims that she ended up face-to-face with the casino's manager about her safety concerns with gangs operating the casino, and he told her not to worry, that he'd made a deal with the Asian gangs. She says a meeting was called with the vice president. They sat in a private poker room and she says, yes, I'm afraid of the gangs. Yes, I don't feel I should have to work with them. And over and over, we're just being told, um, you know, this is, you know, friends loaning money to friends. Mm -hmm. According to her recollection and allegations, the manager responded and said, you don't have to worry. This is just Asian gangs. It is not the Hells Angels, nor is it the Russian Mafia. It's Asian gangs. Not to fear, I have made a deal. It, it's very important that I say at this point, this is her memory mm-hmm. and her allegation. And the manager inside the casino denies that he ever made any deal with any type of gangs. He says he did meet with some uh, what I would call nefarious characters, uh, people such as Lai Chang Zing, uh, China's most wanted man, mm-hmm. Betty Yan, an alleged loan shark who ended up being executed in Richmond outside an alleged illegal casino. He says, sure, I met with these people and sometimes I would tell them you're not welcome and throw them out. So he strongly denies ever making a deal with gangs. That is Sam Cooper with John McComb. Now let's hear what David Eby had to say about all of this. Well, you know, it's uh, stories like these, which are exactly why we're doing the work uh, that we're doing here in our government uh, on being sworn in, you know, establishing uh, the presence of the regulator in BC casinos at peak hours when people are actually gambling so that if an employee has a concern, you know, I I read... uh, read the story about the employee uh, who was working at Great Canadian uh, 20 years ago who had concerns about things that were happening on the floor mm-hmm. while she was working. Uh, now in BC, the regulator is present uh, in the casino at those times. And so any employee could go to the regulator uh, and make reports on the floor about what they were observing and action could be taken right away. Uh, before we came in, the regulator was only present Monday to Friday, nine to five. Um, so we're making changes like that. We have, uh, we're working on a dedicated uh, police unit in terms of casinos. Uh, so it's, it's stories like these that Mr. Cooper has brought forward. That's exactly why we're doing this. Um, I think it's important to note, too, uh, that, uh, that there is uh, constantly uh, an opportunity for us to improve what's happening in casinos and to crack down on this kind of activity. Uh, and we need to work with service providers, police, and uh, the regulator in doing that. And uh, it is an ongoing issue that we're continuing to work on here at the provincial government. Doesn't it also show, though, that it's not just a, like a former B.C. Liberal government problem here? I mean, late 1990s, that was an NDP government. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that um, the issue of money laundering, uh, loan sharking, uh, often uh, gaming is associated with uh, uh, sex work and exploitation of uh, different kinds. Uh, I don't think that is a political party problem. I think the issue generally is how uh, the political parties that are in power respond to these problems when they're identified. 
Um, so I can't speak for the government of the 90s in terms of what the response was, if and when any reports were made. Unfortunately, we tried to find the records, uh, and there are no records from 20 years ago. The Gaming Policy Enforcement Branch did not exist at that time, so I, I can't speak to that. But what I can tell you is that uh, the instant that I got reports, and, and this sexual assault, uh, unreported assault allegation at River Rock is a good example, the second I get a report that there's a problem in our casinos, uh, immediately we do external investigations, uh, we address the policy issue, uh, we increase enforcement. Um, it is a significant difference from the approach of the previous government, um, and uh, I'm proud of that record. Uh, what is the next step here? We know the, the rest of that Peter German report is supposed to come out. What is the timeline for that? Uh, we're getting that report out as quickly as possible. I'm hopeful to have it out uh, in the coming uh, weeks and, and hopefully, uh, possibly, I don't want to predict, but possibly as soon as next week. Also, uh, the report uh, in front of Cabinet in terms of determination about whether or not to move to public inquiry. I also noticed in reading through Sam Cooper's story today, he was pointing out that, you know, the NDP government in 97 increased betting limits from 25 to $500 per hand, extended gambling hours, and these witness reports show that immediately they noticed a difference in terms of the people who were, you know, the gangs coming into the casinos. Does this show that BC has always had this problem? Like, have we been ignoring it essentially for almost 20 years? Well, BC, I mean, and all jurisdictions have issues with crime and money laundering and gangs. Um, and so that is not something that is, uh, in my opinion, uh, unique to any particular government. Um, the government of the 90s uh, uh, turned what was uh, charity-based uh, casinos uh, into uh, formal casinos, established formal uh, uh, casinos in British Columbia. Uh, and with that comes all kinds of challenges that need to be addressed, uh, loan sharking, uh, money laundering, and so on, and requires uh, enforcement uh, and detection and these kinds of things. So uh, there was definitely a change in the character of gaming in the province uh, at that time. Uh, and uh, and so, yeah, it, uh, it is something that needs to be dealt with in any jurisdiction that operates casinos. Uh, and uh, that's not necessarily unique to BC. What is unique to BC, I think, um, is that for the better part of uh, two decades, uh, we have had a very serious issue of a lack of enforcement in relation to organized crime and money laundering. And the, the story is uh, very clearly coming out about that. It needs to be fixed, uh, and there needs to be accountability for that. And uh, we will get there. When you mentioned, you know, when we changed from that charity-based gambling to kind of money-generating gambling, do you think that was a mistake? Uh, well, when you look across North America, you can see that casinos uh, are present in most jurisdictions uh, in North America. Um, it would be unusual for British Columbia to be one of the only jurisdictions without casinos. It's a driver of tourism. It generates a huge amount of money uh, for the public. But uh, like uh, the service of alcohol, like the sale of cannabis, uh, like other regulated industries, uh, it needs to be done very carefully and properly. Uh, and that has been one of the challenges on my desk since I was sworn in, is to ensure that we restore British Columbia's confidence that we can, in fact, uh, regulate and operate this industry responsibly and properly. And I think we're well on track to doing that. Yeah, you've been doing this for almost two years now. Do you feel, have we turned a corner on this money laundering problem? Um, in terms of the bulk cash coming into casinos, I can say yes, uh, that we've stopped that activity. Uh, in terms of uh, broader issues related to uh, bank drafts and other activities that may be taking place, and the broader issue of money laundering in our economy, I can tell you absolutely not. We have not uh, yet gotten to a place where uh, I feel confident in, in saying uh, that we're addressing this issue. And part of that, unfortunately, is due to the difficult time we've had getting the attention of the federal government on this issue, uh, because a lot of this activity is international in nature, involves federal areas of jurisdiction like FinTrack and the banks. 
But I can also say that I'm hopeful that the Budget Implementation Act passes very soon, and that will change the criminal code provision about money laundering that will make prosecutions easier. And uh, that's one tool, for example, that we can look to to start to turn the tide on this. I noticed that uh, Premier Kenny this morning said that he's going to call a public inquiry in Alberta to look into the influence of foreign money on environmental groups in Canada. Now, if they can have that public inquiry, can we not have a public inquiry into money laundering? The uh, German report and Maloney reports are uh, are in front of Cabinet, and all that information will be considered by Cabinet in deciding whether or not to call a public inquiry. And uh, British Columbians will have a decision on that in the coming weeks. Aha! A decision on that and other things in the coming weeks. That's something we're going to be watching for. That's David Eby, the Attorney General of the province. All right, let's talk about recycling. This has been a very hot topic this week as we've been following along with this special recycling series that Global News has been doing. And it's been an eye-opener for so many of us to find out that there are problems with recycling large amounts of material in Canada to the point where maybe we're not recycling as much stuff as we thought we were. And municipalities right across the country, large and small, are kind of grappling with this new reality that the recycling industry is going through this transformation. Some of it is on a bit of a life support situation. But what about here in B.C.? We're doing a lot of recycling here. We lead the country when it comes to the number of products and things that we recycle. But we wanted to know, does that mean that we are innovators? Are we ahead of the pack? Are we doing a better job of this? Joining us now is John Coyne, the board chair of Recycle BC. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Sonny. Now, we are so curious about this. Like A lot of these recycling stories we've heard about have been painting a bit of a dire picture. What about what's going on in BC? Uh, BC, I think, probably has stepped ahead of most other jurisdictions in this country, largely because the system operates on a fully provincial basis, and that's a very important consideration. But most importantly, Jimmy, the entire system is paid for entirely by the producers of the paper and packaging that goes into the recycling system. So what kind of a difference does that make? Well, it, 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 you can achieve a couple of things. First of all, you can standardize the materials across the province. So you and I, if we live in different places, we're not going to be confused by having different materials and different boxes that may or may not go into the box. And as a result, what we've got is a higher level of performance. We've got better quality of material, and everybody knows what their obligations should be and how to do recycling well. That's the first important thing. You and I won't be confused as consumers. But when we do that as well, we're going to create an economic opportunity because by having the same types of materials everywhere, we've got scale, we've got standardization, we've got synergies, and now we can create markets for those materials domestically in British Columbia. And are we doing that? Because I know the problem in other parts of the country is that they have nowhere to send their recyclables. Indeed. British Columbia is quite different that way. And again, I I come back to the fact that this is a provincial program as opposed to a municipal program. So you have the scale of the entire volume of material in the province. And when Recycle BC was set up several years ago and we began this program, end markets were created in British Columbia because of that. So plastics, for example, we don't need to worry about having to send plastics to foreign jurisdictions because the Recycle BC material is recycled domestically in metropolitan Vancouver with the investments that have been made by processors in Vancouver. Similarly, glass is is reprocessed in Abbotsford. Metal containers are sold in markets in British Columbia, Ontario, and the United States because we have a similar volume of material. So 
we've taken care of some of those challenges that other jurisdictions are facing that don't have the scale that British Columbia had. So are we not sending any product overseas? Like I heard that in some other parts of the country, they're essentially storing some of these recyclables. There, there, there's a great difficulty in other parts of the country when China, the primary market for recyclables for many, many years, uh, chose to stop accepting recyclables into their jurisdiction because of the poor quality of the materials. Mm-hmm. That has caused a lot of backing up in the system, if I can put it that way, in other jurisdictions. British Columbia does not suffer from that because, again, with the scale of the province-wide system, you can attract investment to the province to allow you to do all of that processing domestically. So then why aren't other provinces or jurisdictions doing what BC does? Several other jurisdictions are, in fact, contemplating that. But this is a process of change management. This is a process of educating those who are already in the system doing this work to understand that, first of all, producers are quite prepared to assume their responsibilities, and that's something that requires planning and dialogue and discussion. First of all, the producers are going to do that. And secondly, that when producers do that, as we did in British Columbia, that there will not be any interruption in the service or deterioration in the service to the residents who are going to be affected by that change. That's, that's a process of discussion and dialogue and change, but several provinces are now looking at that actively. Right. I know one of the big concerns is when it comes to plastics, there's so many different types of plastics and it's hard to kind of recycle them consistently. How is BC tackling that? BC is actually tackling that because um, unlike other provinces, in fact, you have a bigger basket of goods in British Columbia. You have more materials in British Columbia than you do in, in other jurisdictions. But again, you have a standard of the material that is going through the box. So everybody knows what to put in the box. They understand the quality that they need to put into the box. And as a result, even though there are different types of plastics, when those plastics arrive at the processing facilities, it is much easier to stream those in terms of the reprocessing that is necessary and therefore the market that you're going to tap into. Right. So then all that education, John, then that you've been doing with BC consumers about you can't put that in your bin or slapping a sticker on somebody's bin. Is this the end result of that? It it is in part. And again, this is not to penalize citizens uh, or consumers. We're not trying to penalize. We're trying to encourage consumers to understand how much easier it can be to recycle when you have a system for a province like British Columbia. So anything that we put out there in terms of stickers or guidance or education, it's all designed to encourage consumers to recycle more and to recycle better. And so far, the reaction to British Columbia has been extremely positive to the way in which the system has been operating. So what can we do better, though? Oh, there's always ways to improve. Certainly, there's always ways to improve. And in fact, one of the things that that, um, we will continue to do is to extend the reach of the program by extending the types of material that you can put in. When we began the program several years ago, there were fewer materials in the box than there are now. And we've worked out with the government a process of continuous improvement so that we can add materials to the box and therefore consumers will be able to recycle more in their box. That's a very encouraging framework for how it is that consumers will react to this, but also the relief that taxpayers will feel because they know that it's not their tax dollars that are paying for these things. It's the producers that are making the contribution in this space. And we're encouraging people to recycle more and more materials. 
So when we hear then, John, about all these mm-hmm. stories in the recycling industry, can we be confident that actually that's not the case in BC? We are an exception. I think, I think you would probably see an exception. And, and that's a very positive story for British Columbia, certainly. But it's a very good example, in our view, about how other jurisdictions can apply the same economic and environmental principles to how they would manage their own programs. It begins with producers assuming their responsibility for this material. And then you apply pretty straightforward, we think, economic arguments to how you build programs that have scale and standards. Interesting. So then part of the problem, John, sounds like to me is that all these other jurisdictions thought that they could just send it off somewhere else and somebody else was going to look after it. Well, for a long time, in fact, that is what was happening. Markets overseas were quite welcoming of the material. And for a long, long time, the system therefore built up those sets of relationships. When those relationships came to an end, it's now incumbent on us to be thinking much more creatively about how we bring this material back to our own jurisdiction. In other words, recycle it domestically for ourselves. And when I say that, that doesn't mean that everything needs to be recycled in a particular province. You should be able to move stuff from, say, Alberta to British Columbia, British Columbia to Alberta, as long as we can have the confidence that the total volumes of material, the greatest amounts, are in fact being recycled here in our own jurisdictions. So we should not get discouraged then, uh, and we should just keep on recycling, keep on doing what we've always been doing. Well, we certainly don't want anybody to get discouraged. Recycling is one of the best ways to reduce waste, to reduce pollution, and in fact, contribute positively to the challenge that we're mounting again against climate change. The footprint, the ecological footprint and climate change or climate Uh, footprint for recycled materials is considerably lower than other materials. So if we're concerned about connecting nature and waste and pollution and climate change, recycling is a very, very capable solution for many, many materials, not just paper and plastic. Well, that makes me feel much better after all the stories that I read this week. So John, thank you very much for your time on that. Well, thank you for your interest in me. That is John Coyne, who's the board chair of Recycle BC's. Hey, what brand do you trust the most? Like when you go shopping, do you think, hey, I like that company, therefore I'm going to buy more of their product? And conversely, do you avoid places where you think, you know what, I don't like what that company is doing. I didn't like their whole attitude at all. I think almost every consumer thinks along those lines. Maybe not, you know, maybe it's subconscious, maybe it's deep down in there, but I think we do this. And that thinking is vital to a company's success or failure in the marketplace. That's why I find surveys like this next story that we're going to be talking about so fascinating. The Peter B. Gustafson School of Business at the University of Victoria has unveiled their fifth annual Gustafson Brand Trust Index. They interviewed extensively 7,000 Canadians from coast to coast of all ages, and they looked at key trends, and it suggests that consumers are more willing to place a brand in a positive light when a company responds to a crisis with honest and authentic remedies. And you know what kills me about that is that even though time and time again, we can analyze that and say, oh yeah, that's the way consumers prefer it. Companies still don't do that. Why don't they do that? But anyway, I digress. Let's find out who is on this list and what it means, how Canadians have been thinking about these companies uh, over the last year. And joining us now for more on that, Dr. Saul Klein, who's the Dean and Professor of Marketing at the International Business Gustafson School of Business at UVic. Well, Dr. Klein, thanks so much for talking to us about this today. First of all, why, why do this? Why examine what brands are most popular? 
Well, it starts off with our interest in thinking about trust. And we think that it's important for businesses to establish trust with their customers. The interest for us then is what's driving trust. And what we're finding is that there's really three different dimensions. One is a very function-based one. We trust brands that deliver on their promises, reliable, good value for money, etc. Secondly, we trust brands who treat us well as customers. They respect our privacy, they communicate with us honestly, they um, fix, our, fix mistakes when things go wrong. And then there's a third element that for us is particularly interesting. It's a value basis to trust, that consumers trust brands whose values align more with their own. So brands that are seen to respect and protect the environment, that are seen to treat their employees well, to make a positive contribution in society. So we think um, looking at trust is really important because it helps us understand that consumers have an expectation for businesses to behave responsibly as well as deliver on their core, their core promises. Mm-hmm. So it essentially it closes that loop between doing the right thing and doing well in terms of performance. And so how do you examine that? So each year, and this is the fifth year that we've done it, we do a fairly large survey of Canadian consumers and ask them a battery of questions about uh, more than 300 different brands and trying to um, tease out their views on each of those different dimensions through a, uh, a series of questions. We also look at the extent to which they are likely to recommend the brand. And again, we find that those brands are the most trusted are typically the ones that consumers recommend. Right, so then this is valuable. For a company to be trusted, it definitely helps their bottom line. For sure. And part of our argument is that it's becoming harder and harder for brands to differentiate themselves on purely functional characteristics or even on relational ones, on the services they deliver. What's more sustainable for the long term are the values that the brands demonstrate. So essentially trying to make the argument that acting responsibly isn't only the right thing to do, but it's good for business. All right, so then what struck you about this year's list? What was the most interesting thing that you saw? Well, we see, we see a couple of things. Um, now that we're in our fifth year, we look at the differences between brands, but we're also looking at the differences over time. Uh, if we look at the top of the ranking, there's, there's quite a lot of stability. So our three top-ranked brands, MEC, CAA, and Costco, have been in the top three for the last four years running. They're brands that really do a good job of building their relationships with the customers. Um, in the case of MEC and CAA, very strong value basis to their relationship with their customers. Mm-hmm. For MEC in particular, uh, it was interesting this year, and we were curious to see how, how uh, people would respond to the brand, because they did have a little bit of an issue uh, last year when uh, they were called out for a lack of diversity in their advertising. Right. Um, what, what we saw, though, was that their response was so well done that it essentially restored trust. The CEO came out very strongly apologizing for that, committing to, to make changes. And as they implemented those changes, I think it just reinforced the fact that this is a brand that really does live by its values. Right. And were there any big jumps this year? Anybody kind of really climbing up that list? Um, some interesting jumps, some recoveries from the previous year. So last year when we did it, it was just after there was a whole bread um, 
scandal about price fixing of bread in uh, in Ontario yes. with uh, major retailers taking a hit. They recovered this year, which is interesting. Another brand that moved up this year, and again, we think it's on a value basis, is Gillette. And you may recall that um, earlier this year, Gillette launched an ad campaign that was seen as quite controversial, um, combating what they saw as more as toxic masculinity, so overly excessive masculine representations. And in some ways, it was a response to the Me Too movement. We saw that uh, from our data that consumers responded very positively to that. And the trust in Gillette as a brand that is contributing to society went up quite significantly. Huh, okay. And what about home hardware? I noticed they really jumped on the list yeah. from 22 in, in 2018 to number four yeah. this year. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And I mean, even more interesting is that home hardware and Home Depot are both tied at number four. Um, if you look at our top 10 overall, heavy concentration of retailers, and we think that the retail environment is getting more and more competitive. And what we see is those brands that are able to build a strong trusting relationship with their customers will survive, and those brands who don't will die. And you know, over the last year, we actually saw some brands drop out of the well, we, um, that failed completely and weren't be measured, brands like Sears, for example. So I think what you're seeing is the, the retailers and the home hardware and, and Home Depot in particular are recognizing that they need to have a much stronger relationship with their customers and are building those levels of trust. Just to run through that top 10, as you mentioned, so number one was Mountain Equipment Co-op, number two is Canadian Automobile Association, then Costco, Home Hardware, Home Depot, Fairmont, Hotels and Resorts, Band-Aid, hmm. uh, Shoppers Drug Mart, Interact, Columbia Sportswear, and Canadian Tire. Uh, Band-Aid is another interesting one. They went from 16th to number hmm. 6 this year, but why? Um, I think for, in Band-Aid's case, it's very much driven by functional performance. Um, they really lead the category on, on that dimension. Um, so much so that you know, the name Band-Aid has really become the, a generic name for um, for the, for their products, and right. they've used it as like bandages as opposed exactly. And I think that's helped them a lot. And uh, you know, in general, as we see customers or consumers having concerns about trust in society, I think there is a little bit of reversion to those old brands that have continued to deliver year after year. And as long as they don't stumble, um, they're they're well positioned. And what happened to some of the other big names uh, in Canada? Like, where's Tim Hortons? Tim Hortons, for the last few years, has been dropping seriously. This year, it recovered a bit, but it's still way below where it has been in the past few years. Um, Tim Hortons is an interesting story, and we see as part of it, part of the drivers of Tim Hortons is a change in ownership. So a couple of years back, they were taken over by a... Um, uh, a company called 3G Capital. Mm -hmm. And the business model of 3G is very much based on cost cutting. And we see that uh, their actions are really undermining the brand. And interestingly enough, it's same as applying for other brands that 3G owns. Um, Kraft Heinz, for example, is part of their stable. And we see quite a significant drop in Heinz this year. Part of it, I think, is that the, the model of continuing to cut costs is not sustainable. At some point, you're taking serious value out of the brand, and you have to invest in it. 
in Tim Horton's case, I think it was an, a matter of, well, this is a brand that really is an iconic brand for Canadians. And as they were cutting costs, they were destroying the relationship that Canadians felt with the brand, and certainly the franchisees had with the brand. So last year, or sorry, in 2017 into 2018, there was also a lot of conflict between Tim Horton's franchisees and the company itself. Over the last year, I think they've been able to stabilize that and, and restore the relationships. So there hasn't been as much negative press, but they're still way below where they were uh, three years ago. Well, I love this kind of stuff because it really shows us where consumers' minds are at right now. Listen, Dr. Klein, thank you so much for your mm-hmm. time. It's a pleasure. Anytime. That is Dr. Saul Klein, the Dean and Professor of Marketing and International Business at the Gustafson School of Business at the University of Victoria. Well, over in the UK today, their Defence Secretary, Gavin Williamson, has been fired quite abruptly, actually. And the reason for it? Well, this is really quite something. The country's Prime Minister, Theresa May, says that she has received compelling evidence that Gavin Williamson was responsible for a leak from a secret government meeting. And that resulted in the public finding out that the UK was planning to give the Chinese telecom giant Huawei some involvement in the rollout of the 5G network. So Theresa May wrote to Gavin Williamson and told him she could no longer have full confidence in him. Now, he has denied that he was the source of the leak. He posted a letter on social media that said that, but the government insists that no decision has been made about Huawei. Remember, this is a decision that we in Canada are also dealing with, and the United States has come down pretty hard on its partners, allies, everybody, saying if you partner with Huawei, then we have a problem with that. Uh, So this, what's happening in the UK, is really quite extraordinary. Alex Thompson joins us now, the chief correspondent for the UK's Channel 4 News. Alex, thank you for being here. My pleasure, Simi. Good morning or afternoon or whatever it is there. Whatever it is. <laughs> Good evening to you. How about we say that? Uh, <laughs> Alex, what happened here? This sounds like a very bizarre situation. Um, bizarre, yes. Unprecedented is a word we love to use as journalists and we overuse it. In this case, it's the only word. You're in the National Security Council. It's the most secretive branch of government. It has one simple rule that everybody knows, that what goes on in that room stays in that room. It's never leaked. If you leak from that, government can't function. Clement Attlee, the Labour leader, Prime Minister, famous um, uh, adage that the government can't keep its secrets, the government can't succeed. Um, So that's true from that point of view. Equally internally, no spies, no spooks are going to bring secrets to the table if they think it's going to waft out in the air conditioning. Now, on this occasion, somehow, somewhere, by somebody, the news that, as you say, Huawei was going to be involved contractually in, in the rollout of 5G got out, and immediately an investigation, as you would well imagine, yeah. uh, by civil servants at this stage, not the police, began. Okay, so once they began that, how was it traced to Gavin Williamson? Well, here we come to the the Prime Minister's letter. Now, letters of uh, when someone has sort of, uh, shall we say, uh, been forced to resign, um, rather British way of saying they've been given the boot, um, they tend to be rather honeyed words, we thank you for your long service and so forth and so forth. 
this was pretty brutal stuff. Um, Theresa May um, says, well, we met tonight um, and uh, you've got to go. And here's why. And she basically says that the course of the inquiry showed that all the people under suspicion, now that would be all the cabinet ministers at that meeting who objected or raised worries about Huawei taking those contracts. Anybody, once news leaks out, who's against that, you can see, fell under suspicion. So the inquiry went, led by the senior civil servant of the cabinet office, went and interviewed all those cabinet ministers. The letter of resignation, the letter from Prime Minister May says tonight, all the others cooperated fully. Your conduct did not match theirs, did not come up to that standard. Ooh. You were presented with evidence which shows you're in the frame of only you. Ouch. Okay. And yet he's denying it. He totally denies it. The quote was, I swear on my children's life, this was not me. And it is ouch to me, but it's an even, it's, it's, it's a major, major ouch because Gavin Williamson was absolutely Theresa's right-hand man. He was the man who ran her election campaign for party leadership. He then became the chief whip, um, which, in, you know, that's a kind of an absurd British parlance. It's basically the chief enforcer for the government. He's the man or woman whose job it is to make sure the votes are there, that they stack up, that they can get their laws passed. Um, he sat there in his office with his tarantula, his pet tarantula, <laughs> in a glass um, uh, vivarium on his desk, which was supposed to in some way add to the area of intimidation when MPs who transgressed came in. Absolutely, Theresa Way's you know, trusted lieutenant all down the line, and it is him who, she says, has lost her confidence tonight. He's gone. Wow. Okay. Is there a concern maybe here, Alex, that cabinet members are leaking information to make themselves look good in a potential leadership race? How could you possibly, possibly (laughs) advise such a cynical, cynical viewpoint? Oh, I don't know. Of course there is. (laughs) Of course this is a prime minister who famously banged on in the election, not about policy, but about strong and stable government. Strong and stable government. If we heard the phrase strong and stable government during the last election once, we've heard it a million times. Then what happens? You have a government that has lost 38 ministers and six cabinet ministers in a year. It is the least strong, least stable, most leap-prone administration in any way possible that you could construct and imagine in modern British political history. Um, But you still, nobody ever leaks from the NSC. And it happened. Wow. Okay. And this also is very, it shows you how sensitive we all are, uh, countries like the UK and in Canada, about this whole Huawei situation too, doesn't it? Well, it does, yeah. The White House doesn't see the funny side of this. Um, uh, they say that any, and you, you said in your introduction, that what goes for Canada absolutely goes for the UK at the moment, that the US position, White House position very much, that if any company or any country rather gets involved uh, with big contracts with Huawei, they have an issue. Now, you know, are the Americans at the White House just being picky or bizarre? You know, I mean, that, that happens a little bit under the president's administration. They can be out of line. The Americans would say, look, if you're running a Chinese, major Chinese multinational, you are, in Chinese law, legally obliged to help spying for your country. So if the Chinese spooks come looking for Huawei and they say, look, we need your debt to do such and such or whatever it may be, Huawei are legally obliged to help. Now, that has given the Americans a problem or two. And as you say, they've not been backward in coming forward about that. So I understand that, okay, now he's been fired, but is there more to this? I understand some MPs are also calling for him to be investigated. Oh, there could be prison. Um, Yes, there's a lot more to it. If this was you or I, I think by this stage... 
it's fair to say. Um, not that anyway, assuming you would ever get involved in this, but no, never. Me, um, <laughs> I would have the Metropolitan Police, nay, the anti-terror branch, no less, coming and fingering and feeling my collar very thoroughly under the official Secret Act. And now we British, we do love our secrecy, and the official Secret Act is a pretty wide-ranging catch-all piece of legislation. If you are found leaking um, confidential uh, information, secret information from the NSC, it's pretty much a black-and-white offence under the Official Secrets Act, and the punishment for transgressing the Official Secrets Act, you will not be surprised here, can involve prison. Should he be found guilty? Should he even be charged? And the police are saying, we're not doing anything, we're not mounting any investigation at the moment. And we stress once, twice, thrice, that Mr. Williamson says he is wholly innocent of this charge and allegation. Wow, it's never dull over there these days, is it? Well, you should come over here. Everybody says it's dull as digital because all we ever talk about is Brexit. But boy, has this given us has this given us some liberation. We've had the climate protesters for the last eleven days in London, and now we've had this. So well, be careful what you wish for. About Brexit. Yeah, be careful what you wish for. Alex, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. That is Alex Thompson, chief correspondent for the UK's Channel Four News.